from UA Little Rock Public Radio, this is The Art Scene. I'm Daniel Brain. It's been a while, but movies are once again roaring back to life. But minus the CGI, the pyrotechnics, the flashy special effects, what are you left with? Our guest this week says that's all you need. Rick O'Donovan is a multi-instrumentalist and self-proclaimed silent film buff, and his latest project is a perfect marrying of the two. He's the titular Rico in his latest show, Rico Meets Garbo, where he'll provide live accompaniment with his original score to the 1926 silent film, The Temptress, starring Greta Garbo. The show runs Saturdays, July 31st and August 7th at 8 p.m. and on Sundays, August 1st and 8th at 2 p.m., all at the Central Theater in Hot Springs. Sort of uh, keeping it in line with the show that we're doing, I um, spent uh, a lot of my life uh, touring around as a uh, an independent folk artist, singer-songwriter. Um, I lived about 17 years in Nashville and about another seven abroad in Spain and Ireland. Launched a sort of an acoustic music career and um, in the... Uh, process, I added Hot Springs, Arkansas to my touring itinerary, and I thought it would be a one of, it's kind of a handful of places that really attracted me um, on a gut level, really fell in love with the place, um, but didn't, wasn't able to spend much time just going through uh, between Little Rock and Dallas. So currently, I, uh, I live in Hot Springs. I love it here. Um, I am not doing the extent of music touring um, even before the pandemic, but I always kept a foot in with music. And um, this particular show we're doing, um, I toured the country in 2010, 2011 with this particular film and this soundtrack. And I revived it in Nashville. We did two nights uh, there and a, couple of other theaters, actually the oldest theater in Tennessee, in Gallatin, Tennessee, the Palace, uh, added, gave us a couple of nights there. And um, it, uh, it was something that I, I've always composed music, and my primary instrument is the hammered dulcimer, which is really melodic and sweet. It, it, it's right in line kind of with the piano and the organ as far as you, you could almost do this solo. Um, and I don't, I layer instruments, but it features the hammer dulcimer. And uh, back in 2010, 2011, I guess it, it, to keep myself interested, I, you're, you're doing your regular music shows. I composed the score to this. We pitched it and got on board with retro theaters that were really fit in the venue. You know, these theaters were built in the 20s and 30s. Um, much like the central here in the Malco, also we have in Hot Springs. And uh, I composed the soundtrack and it turned out to be a really great experience, worthy of resurrecting, because it's revived my interest in taking on maybe another silent film and, and scoring. It's time intensive to score. You know, this is about an hour and 45 minute film. Well, I do want to uh, ask more about this particular project that you're you're involved in but I do want to ask a little bit more about you as a musician um, when you say that you're a folk musician and when you say you, you play the hammer dulcimer primarily you know the people's minds I think gravitate 
naturally to Appalachia and American folk music, but um, it, it sounds like you've, you've lived sort of like a global life. So I was just wondering what your travels and what the different places and different cultures sure. and music that you've been exposed to, how that's impacted your own musical tastes. I started out playing the hammered dulcimer um, as a, I, I was living in Baltimore and there was a pretty thriving um, music scene there. This is going to date, this is going back to early nineties. My first instrument was drums. I was a jazz drummer and I played guitar and I played bass and we had all these, it was one of these music scenes where you might play guitar in one band and drums in another. And a friend of mine mentioned the hammer dulcimer and said, march yourself down to Baltimore bluegrass and play one and tell me you don't love this. You hit strings. So it's percussive and melodic. So I, I adopted it in and I played it very improvisationally. Um, it lent itself to, um, and nobody really was doing this using a hammered dulcimer in rock music or rock based music. And I got to a point where I really wanted to master the instrument and I'm Irish and I, uh, I always had an affinity for Irish tunes. So I started, I had my training wheels on by the time I got to Ireland. And then when I lived there, uh, soaking up all the music and the, uh, the culture as well, you know, um, it uh, threw me uh, full bore into uh, traditional Irish music. And I busked over there. I scratched the living together as best I could. And I started performing and playing. Then I started songwriting and gathering musicians together to come in and make a record. You know, my grounding is, is both traditional and then like a lot of folk people they have that trad background but they have a creative side that they want to write and they want to uh hope you have lyrics kicking around and you have good musicians around you you know and it's the right time you can you can really go to town yeah i'm always curious about that like you put it the right time like when did you realize that that was you know you had all these these music and lyrics within you that you like just couldn't keep it in anymore was there one specific moment when you realized that I think traveling kicked that off. Travel is a great antidote for a lot of things, including pain. Sometimes a geographic change, throwing yourself out there can spur these things. And that's kind of what happened to me when I started to get more into folk music and, and songwriting. And, um, and they literally, I, 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 I spent a lot of years in Nashville. I did some studio work as a studio musician and um, played with other people on their stuff. But I didn't ascribe to the Nashville songwriting sort of craft idea that you sort of labor over this thing, this song for months on end and tweak it. And I say that kind of uh, for novel and short story writing. That's the different. When I look at songwriting, I kind of look at it like Johnny Cash used to say, I wrote my best songs on a napkin in a diner. It's just. So everybody has their their way to get, but mine is is been a hundred percent inspiration, and I, I feel like when I try to craft something or it 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 doesn't work personally. So, but both of the records that I've made, they were both really kind of the 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 creative the songs came really fast and they were usually the second record was when I was touring across the Southwest a lot. You have long stretches of beautiful, beautiful American Southwest 
And, you know, you've got a little tape recorder nearby or a pen and you're in the van with the guys. And it, it's so it's really spontaneous kind of process. Yeah, it seems like you almost can't help it. Like if you're you see something that inspires you, you really just have to get it out there before it festers, I guess. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Grab the moment, as it were. Um, and compositionally, that works, too, with, um, you know, melodic ideas and you know, they sort of bits and pieces that I utilized for the, the, the Temptress, the film that we're showing that composition, um, you know, so words and also sounds, you know, melodies that, that come to you, you want to kind of pin them down. It gets a little, you know, we live in the electronic age. I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we were just, maybe we trained our brains to, to keep them, in there and now i feel like things start coming I, i'm grabbing for my my little um digital recorder or, you know and tag this you know and i wonder if we don't trust ourselves enough to remember it because that's the way it used to work um but sometimes that stuff can actually get in the way of composing um, because you're reaching for the record before you've even really processed it this kind of goes to my question of what what about what is the magic of silent movies? You said earlier that you're a, a silent movie buff, and it, it seems like that is maybe the 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 magic of having something that's very similar. Obviously, we have movies now, but they're they all have sound and music to them, and explosions and things like that. It's kind of like a, a not not necessarily a novelty, but there's something different, something better about it where you actually don't have that dimension of sound uh, alongside it. But I, I was just curious of what you think about silent movies. Why are you fascinated with this? Sure. Yeah. My, my, my personal draw and I will say the draw of, of, of many people, this probably speaks to, to, to people that, um, that hadn't had experience. I, I, I didn't grow up with silent film. Um, it came to me, um, somewhere around uh, 2007 timeframe, I had a, a hand injury that debilitated my ability to, to play my instruments and music. And um, through that kind of painful period, um, it, it was kind of a drawing in. Um, I, I, one night, I guess, just, um, I don't even remember how it was introduced. It might've been TCM, you know, they run those sometimes. And um, I started watching it like a lot of people would go, eh, you know, silent film, that's antique and it's, it's pantomime and people are uh, over, overacting visually to convey and, and so forth. But I, I must've caught one from, you know, the age between maybe 1924 uh, being ish through the 30, 1930 when it converted over to, to sound um, dialogue. There was an age there where the production value was extremely high. The acting became nuanced. And more importantly, the, the films began to have music as an element. I've, I've watched people who didn't see silent films and some of them were at my shows and they expressed this after after is one of the biggest, I had 20 somethings walking up to me and saying, I was just in, like after a minute or two, I was in this thing. It was, I was like focused because there was just this rich visual experience 
And then you were playing and we forgot you were there, which was the biggest compliment, right? You know, usually a performer wants people to, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, the opposite of what you normally do when you're performing music live, you know, you, you want people to uh, forget that you're there because that means you're kind of doing the justice to the, 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 the film medium. King the door, one of the big directors of that, well, right through the 1960s, but he, he was at the forefront of the, one of the, probably, arguably the top director of the silent era. Um, once said later when he was teaching at UCLA film he, school, he said um, that back then music was 50% of the experience. That pretty much summed it. I, I, when I read that, I went, wow. That's that's why I'm doing this. When the films began to have musical scores put to them, there was a different, a new level of sophistication. Um, and, and suddenly you had film stars like Garbo who were not just miming and she came from a different method in school and she translated and had great success in, in the uh, talkies. This is The Art Scene from UA Little Rock Public Radio. I'm Daniel Breen. We're speaking with musician Rick O'Donovan. His show, Rico Meets Garbo, features a live music accompaniment to the silent film The Temptress at Hot Springs Central Theater on the last weekend in July and the first weekend in August. Well, yeah, well, tell us about Greta Garbo. Who, who was she, both maybe to you as, as a, a film watcher and to the people in the time in which she lived who are also right. watching the movies, like for maybe people who don't know of her but maybe have heard of her? Why, why is she a big name and what did she represent? Growing up in New Jersey, my initial uh, exposure to Garbo was really, she was living in New York and she, she lived to a pretty ripe old age as a hermit. She retired at 39 um, and pretty much went away and hid. She was kind of, uh, somebody referred to her as uh, the reluctant hermit because she would go on these walks and every once in a while in the New York Post or these tabloid magazines, you know, some, a photog- somebody would get a picture of her. You know, she, she had this, wanted to have this elusive kind of, um, um, nature that really was always about her. But so as a young kid, it was kind of like a funny, like, did somebody get a picture of Garbo today? And then growing up, realizing that she was an iconic figure in film and, and probably, you know, as, as uh, women in Hollywood go, very much a forerunner. She commanded a lot of power at MGM. Um, I think at her height, her films were responsible for about 12% of their gross. And that was a point of power that heretofore, uh, at a time when Hollywood was really in the studios, had the power, the actors and the actresses um, less so. So Garbo, literally, she um, caught the eye of Louis B. Mayer in Berlin, Germany. She was a young, probably 18, 19 years old then in the Swedish film industry. And he attended a premiere of a three hour, not unusual in those days, this is pre-television, 
Uh, they made big, long movies, too, some, sometimes. Um, anyway, Mayer was immediately interested and offered her a contract and brought her over to America. So she waited about a year under contract, and they weren't doing anything with her. And her and her kind of uh, protege, Moritz Stiller, who was her main director in Sweden, he came over with her. They sat pretty much in New York through a sweltering summer. Finally, she does her first film, and it, it's decent. This one that we're doing, The Temptress, is her second Hollywood film, much larger uh, production scale. And now they got a cast in there. We had um, players like Lionel Barrymore is in this film. A lot of sort of MGM stock actors and actresses are, are in this one. And it ups the, the quality. And it really kind of kicked her career uh, into full gear. So that's kind of Garbo. Garbo reigned supreme in the silent era once, once this, after this film came out. And then was one of the few silent era stars, mega stars, to actually make the transition into talkies and uh, maintain her, not just maintain her career, but her megastar status. Yeah, well, this film, The Temptress, I mean, it goes along with what you were saying about her as kind of being this elusive, aloof person. Um, and I, I don't know if that was generally how she was cast, but um, yeah, you said what it meant to her career and basically the evolution of, of silent film. But what what is this film to you? What what it was what was so special about it that drew you to want to score it? I think primarily the visual. Um, the the it was directed by a guy named Fred Niblo, and actually Stiller, her Swedish big big director in Swedish cinema and and kind of brought Garbo up in the Swedish arguably responsible for her fame really at the end of the day Stiller started on the project and some of the footage is is Stiller's uh, work but what really got me were some of the there was there's a lot of novel techniques used in this a crane to do a long moving shot along a banquet table you know, so the first thing that I thought, oh my God, this thing is so visually rich. There's, it's gonna, it, it's a great canvas to paint on. You know, there were a few films I could have chosen. This one really, really uh, spoke to me. Garbo did her early film. She plays the vamp, kind of the. There's a love triangulation and. She's dividing up best friends who are fighting over her. Uh, and she doesn't play really sympathetic characters as far as that goes. She, she tired of that really quickly. And when she had enough power, she could march into Louis B. Mayer's office, which Mayer was a tough guy. And he was a super hard person to, to negotiate with. He grew up <clears throat> poor kind of, never finished high school, grew up kind of fistfights. Uh, he was grew up on the street and he carried that into his um, running the studio. He ran it with an iron fist. But when Garbo had enough clout, she could walk in and threaten to leave. And with her, he couldn't let the door close. He'd have to go, wait, 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 you know. 
And so she started to, to beg for more um, classic roles like Anna Karenina, Camille. Um, and so her, her character, her, her casting widened a bit as she gained more clout. But the early films, she very much established herself as the vamp short for vampire for anybody who doesn't know the term. It was something that they used for uh, female characters back then who, um, let's just say, um, often drove two men to, to duels. <laughs> the films where they're wielding pistols or swords. You mentioned the, the rich set design of, of silent films and the um, obviously the, the genius of Garbo and her acting and her characters. Um, yeah, I guess just what is the process of assembling all those disparate elements and, and putting those together and then translating that into a music, a musical score. Did you have any, any, um, original musical score to go off of as well? No, I didn't. Um, there, there are scores to different silent films, some of them extant and some of them, um, gone, you know, like, like a lot of the silent film stock i think something like 80 percent of silent films are gone they're lost they were destroyed because um when sound came on you know the theater owners rightfully so thought nobody's ever going to want to watch these again and then you get uh you know to come to find out almost 100 years later um there are uh there's pretty good uh subculture of I don't know what you want to call us but people who uh want to are, are just terribly excited when something gets found that was rendered missing and restored and digitally restored the uh the the composing process is really just um kind of approached it like writing a novel it's start at the beginning it's the easiest way to go than to jump in nine you know in 50 minutes and say, I really like this scene. I'm going to start here. Um, I think it has a trajectory like any good film does. That, that you, So musically, you kind of want a storyline in a way. And so uh, pop the DVD in, get to sit in front of the big screen and get to work. Um, but, but sort of chronologically, sequentially. And then it's just... Uh, Subtleties, some, some element of sound effects to accentuate things that really has a place. There's everything in this film from just someone wagging their finger and doing something on your instrument to kind of make a sound of that. You know? So it, it is a, a, a pretty, what's the word? It, it can be tedious at times to get that all done, but it's fun in the end. The only silent film I, I think I've ever seen is Metropolis, but I watched it uh, with the the new score that was done. That's I think great. in the eighties or nineties. Um, yeah. And I just I was wondering about your. Uh, you obviously know the film, so I was wondering about like that um, that juxtaposition between something that's like nearly a hundred years old, the film, and all the visuals that are still so so stunning to this day. Coupled with modern music, like I, I assume you're you're probably doing that as well in this. What, what do you think that creates? I think um, I mean one of the remarks that really stuck with me when I was touring this that couple of years um, back in 2010. Again, young people, you know, teenagers, twenty somethings, saying I, I'm I, 
I'm so, I can't believe the production value of that film. I mean, I, this was, they had never seen a silent film. Obviously not all silent films had the budget and the money that Metropolis had. Fritz Lang, um, by then he's at the forefront of German cinema and uh, the studios. Uh, I mean, at the time of, of The Temptress, the one we're doing, um, MGM had a city, Culver City was, they had five huge hangars um, and, um, where, and a cafeteria. And it was like a little world in there. And the actors and actresses would meet at lunch to talk about what films they were. It was like, and obviously they had a lot of money to do that. Um, but it, um, it lent also, I think it upped the game of the actors and actresses. And again, we moved out of pantomime and overacting. A lot of those silent stars were theater actors because they went from the stage to this new medium called film and motion pictures. Um, who were the motion picture people looking for? Actors. Where were actors? They were on the stage. So they spoke really loudly to be heard in the back row. Theater acting is a different thing altogether. Garbo, less so, was sort of theater grounded. She did a little bit of theater, but not a lot. And she was young. And her and uh, other stars around her, I won't throw out names because people's eyes might glaze over, but people that came up in the mid-20s that I would call it the golden age of silent film when it became more sophisticated, they, they acted with their eyes and their face told the story. And so through subtlety, through real small, she had a minimum of gestures, minimum of movement. And it was the opposite of what preceded her, which was an, a maximum of movement and expressing, you know, despair by throwing your arm back. And uh, for example, so that to me can be more moving than one of the great, than the greatest lines of dialogue, not to discount their value, but it's amazing how that, how that can happen just with a visual and then hopefully music lending the mood. Music actually used to be played on the set when they were shooting. They would hire a, a trio, you know, a violinist, a pianist, and maybe a guitar player. Just usually two or three musicians would be on set and the director would have them create the mood so that if the actress or the actor needed to shed tears, they could move that along by setting a musical mood. So in the same way, when you're going live to screen, you're, you're thinking, what kind of emotion are we, where are we at here? What's, what's happening on the screen? Let me just briefly talk a moment just so um, about, about the Central Theater. The Central Theater, like a lot of buildings, uh, we're all excited here in Hot Springs. Um, old buildings are in some cases being uh, saved from um, ruination. And the Central Theater uh, was recently purchased by a local guy. Um, his family goes back here, Chris Ricks. Um, 
who is also a realtor in town, but he has several uh, renovation projects going on, one of which is Bill Clinton's boyhood home. Um, so most notably right now, the Clinton boyhood home in the Central Theater, um, he has pretty, he's pretty much at the tail end of the restoration of the Central. So this is gonna be one of the first, one of the first um, big events uh, to get people to come out and see the newly renovated Central Theater. The, everything from the exterior of the theater to the, the interior decor is really true to the age. So it's a wonderful thing when your audience marches into this kind of chamber of the past, if you will, because that's once the lights go down and the, the film starts running, it's kind of like you're getting an experience that people had a hundred years ago. That was Rick O'Donovan, writer, multi-instrumentalist, and film buff. His show, Rico Meets Garbo, is set for Saturdays, July 31st and August 7th at 8 p.m. And on Sundays, August 1st and 8th at 2 p.m. at the Central Theater in Hot Springs. And that's our show for this week. Please tune in next week at the same time. I'm Daniel Green, and The Art Scene is a presentation of UA Little Rock Public Radio. Here she comes, here she comes.